Well, Christ Church, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. And please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will be taking uh, a hiatus from the book of Romans uh, during the month of December uh, to focus our hearts on the, uh, uh, the incarnation and birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, of course, we are Sabbatarians at Christ Church, and we do not follow uh, the church calendar in any strict sense, but uh, we do believe that it's a time of year where so many people are tuned in uh, to this aspect of the Christian faith and message, and so what a delight to be able to focus our hearts on this fundamental uh, part of our Christian faith, the incarnation and birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, ruling Elder Toby Hester read from the previous uh, section of Luke, and I will read the very next uh, section, uh, Luke 1, 26 through 38. Please pay attention to the Word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word and what you declare in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that the word came to the Thessalonians not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so we simply ask, Lord, that that would be true of us here today, that as your word is preached, that we would receive it and that we would receive it under the power of of your spirit and with full conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, we will spend the next four Sundays uh, in uh, these gospel narratives, these birth narratives culminating uh, in the birth of Christ on uh, the Lord's Day, uh, which is also in God's providence, uh, Christmas Day. We're going to turn our attention to these mysteries, these glorious mysteries of salvation, that which exalts divine wisdom and surpasses human comprehension. That is, of course, 
the incarnation of the Son of God, God's eternal Son being born of a virgin, the Creator becoming a creature, the infinite contained in finitude, the eternal one entering the constraints of time, the King of glory, the exalted one entering the estate of humiliation and laying aside his divine privileges, all to rescue us from what our sins deserve. What a story. What a magnificent gospel we all are given. Why did God send his son into the world? To meet the demands of his own law and to pay the colossal debt of your sin and my sin. What a mystery. What a love. What a cause for rejoicing. Amen? What a cause for rejoicing we have. In fact, it's the, the title of this series is Rejoice. And I hope that we will be rejoicing in these birth narratives over the next few weeks together. Edward Caswell in 1851 wrote this, Sacred infant, all divine, what a tender love was thine. Thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. Beloved, people are upward, upwardly mobile. It's so true of our own area. People often don't think in terms of being downwardly mobile. They don't think in those terms. As human beings, as those who are focused so often on our own comforts and protection, not a bad thing if it's not the ultimate goal. But we are always talking and thinking about being upwardly mobile. Do you know it was quite the contrary for our, our Savior? He came down. He left glory and came into the brokenness and filth of our world and amidst our sin. He was the object of the worship of the angels, the prince of heaven, and he left heaven to come into this world to experience outward temptation, to experience and see unbelief all around him, ultimately to give his life as an atoning sacrifice for us. But this is what our Savior did. And we're going to turn our attention to this glorious story over the next few weeks. Well, in our text for this morning in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, uh, we come to this story having already uh, known that some things have been happening. Uh, Gabriel had already made a trip from heaven uh, down to speak to uh, Zechariah, the priest in the temple. And so he gives this word. And of course, he didn't believe it. He thought, how can this be? We're old. And, and so uh, we know there were lots of details around that story that are interesting. We're not going to delve into it, but we've got a little context here that it was six months later that once again, Gabriel is called upon by God to go down and to deliver a message. Imagine how exciting things were in heaven when that was, was happening. You know, six months have passed and Gabriel, come here. I've got another assignment for you. Look at me at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God 
to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We learn from verse 36, of course, that the reference here to the sixth month refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's uh, pregnancy. With this reference, Luke reminds us of what had already transpired and that God had done what he said he would do through Zechariah and Elizabeth by giving them a son in their old age. It was in that sixth month that the angel Gabriel was sent from heaven on another mission. Again, on his first mission, he was sent to Zechariah, to the temple, to speak with this priest. But this time, his destination was to the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And he was sent not to a priest, but to a young teenage virgin named Mary, who was betrothed to a man by the name of Joseph. Now, when we look at the word betrothal, we often don't think of it in the terms that it's meant to be understood because it's different in our day and culture. In those days, betrothal oftentimes took place very soon after puberty. Thus, Mary was probably in her early teens when she was betrothed to Joseph. And put simply, betrothal was a mutual contract for future marriage. Betrothal was a mutual contract for future marriage, but it was different than what we know in practice as engagement. Betrothal in those days was binding. It was part of the marriage process in Jewish culture, usually lasting about a year. And so even during the betrothal, the couple was was considered husband and wife. They were considered husband and wife, though they were not yet permitted to have sexual relations. All of this was a part of the Jewish custom. Joseph, Luke informs us in verse 27, was of the house of David, just as the Virgin Mary was. And this was to fulfill the prophecy, of course. And we looked at this last year in our uh, look at Christmas and the covenants. This was to fulfill the prophecy uh, that this Messiah would come from the lineage of David in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So imagine it. Here's the young Virgin Mary. She's going about her daily activities and duties when surprisingly she finds herself in the presence of a majestic, fiery, glorious angel, an archangel from heaven sent from God himself to deliver a message to her. We read his first words in verse 28. Look there with me. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. How did Mary respond? Well, she responded like probably most of us would respond, with fear. Imagine going about your daily activities and suddenly there's Archangel Gabriel in all of his glory. She responded with fear initially. She was greatly troubled, the text says, by Gabriel's greeting. The question that arises here is this. Why was she troubled by the angel's words? Because that's also what she was troubled by. Well, here's a young girl. She is of low social status. She understands her own sin and unworthiness. Why would this archangel be singling her out of all people? Who is she to receive such attention? It doesn't make sense. Archangels from heaven don't meet with young teenage girls in 
the lower strata of society. In a place like Nazareth, she was greatly troubled, perhaps a bit confused. Well, seeing Mary's fear, Gabriel gently said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You have found favor with God. Mary is the favored one, the one who has found favor with God. She is the favored one. She has been the recipient of divine grace and blessing. Now, it's probably important because of Christian tradition and history and uh, what we know from uh, medieval Rome and the Latin Vulgate translation, which had a massive impact on Western civilization, uh, that the, the, the Latin Vulgate, which, which really was the, the Bible used in the medieval Roman Catholic Church, which was, was the church in the Western civilization, it says this, quote, Hail Mary, full of grace, gratia plena, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Now, let it be said that this is not an altogether poor rendering of this text. We have a different translation in our Bibles, but this isn't, isn't a terrible translation, actually. Um, as long as uh, full of grace does not mean you are full of inherent grace and may pass that grace along to others for centuries to come. If you look at that translation and that's your interpretation, it's wrong. That is not right. This is, of course, what the Roman Catholic Church has taught and currently teaches, but it's, it's wrong. No, any grace that Mary had experienced was received. Any grace she had experienced came from God to her, and Mary herself was not without the need of a Savior. In fact, we're going to see later in Mary's song that she herself called God her Savior. Mary was a sinner. She needed God's grace, as do we. Mary was an object of God's saving grace and mercy, not one who gives grace and mercy. Listen to what John Calvin says, quote, If Mary's happiness, righteousness, and life flow from the undeserved love of God, if her virtues and all her excellence are nothing more than the divine kindness, it is the height of absurdity to tell us that we should seek from her what she derives from another quarter in the same manner as ourselves. So let us honor Mary. Let us give thanks for her and her role in redemptive history. Let us remember that she is a highly favored one through whom the promised Messiah, the Son of God, would be born. However, let us not look to her for grace. Just as I do not look to you for grace and you don't look to me for grace, we look to Christ for grace. Amen? He is the the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy. The one mediator. There aren't many mediators. We don't go through saints. We don't go through relics. We don't go through Mary to receive grace or to get grace. 
we go to Christ, who is full of grace and truth for his people. There is no other mediator. Mary found favor with God, for she would give birth to the Messiah. Perhaps we ought to pause for just a moment and ask where it is that we have gone for saving grace. Have you gone to the wrong place? Are you looking for grace in the wrong places? Grace comes through Jesus Christ, the mediator. We cannot find it elsewhere. That saving grace comes through Christ. Well, look with me at verses 31 through 33. And here we see a stunning announcement. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Perhaps you're, you're hearing this or reading this and thinking, why is it saying that he, he will be called the Son of the Most High? That God will give him the throne of his father David. I thought the son of God was eternal. Well, he is, but he was, is not eternally in the flesh. He, he took on human flesh in his incarnation. But prior to that, he was only spirit, right? And so it is through the, the, the mediatorial ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he is born into this world, born of a virgin, that he accomplishes our redemption and is in humiliation. And later, after his resurrection and ascension, is exalted. And it's in that exaltation that the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the Son of the Most High. He becomes this, this glorious, uh, uh, triumphant king. Who, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And so it's, of course, later that he receives all these accolades and glory from the Father as the God-man, and his kingdom will have no end. So let's consider Gabriel's words in four parts. First of all, you will conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus. So, obviously here, as a virgin, Mary will conceive and bear a son. Liberal scholars want to say that this just means young woman and that it's nonsense to talk about a virgin birth. In fact, liberal and progressive theologians will just, just wipe away all supernaturalism from Christianity. The feeding of the 5,000. Oh, that was just when Jesus took out the bread and the fish Everybody said, hey, let's share with each other. And it wasn't about the multiplication of the bread and the fish. It was about the miracle of sharing. You ever heard that one? Well, if you'll go into a lot of mainline Sunday school classes, you will hear that story. Because it comes out of Harvard Divinity School and Duke Divinity School and Princeton and other places where supernaturalism is, is erased. But here we come to the virgin birth. This is not only true, it's also, as we will see, necessary. And his name would be called Jesus. The reason for this name is explained in Matthew's gospel in chapter 1 and verse 21, isn't it? We are told there that, G that Joseph had a dream uh, from uh, the angel telling him that he was to name the child Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name 
Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Christ is the realization of all of God's promises, and he saves. In Jesus, the salvation of God's people would be realized. Notice Gabriel also says he will be great and called the Son of the Most High. He will be great because he'll rule over God's kingdom forever. He will, as it states in Isaiah 53, 12, divide divide the spoil with the strong, conquering all of his and our enemies. However, this greatness would first show itself in his humility, his meekness, giving his own life as a sacrifice for our sins. Remember, it also says in Isaiah 53, 12, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. With his stripes, we are healed. I am often moved by the idea that that we find at times in in Christmas hymns of of the the little child, the precious baby being held in the mother's arms and knowing that that child will one day hang on a tree for for you and me. And it's especially precious uh, for this congregation, this time of year, as we have so many little babies, so many, uh, 12 babies with uh, one more coming in the next couple of weeks. And I want to encourage you as, you, as you hold these children, these, these, uh, these children as, you, as you look at them, as you uh, feel their little silky hands, to be thinking about the reality of what, what was true of Christ when he was born into this world as one of us, as a true human, and yet without sin. And 33 years later, those, those little tiny hands would, would, would mature and and would become a little leathery because if Christ was a carpenter and, and, uh, and then would be laid down on a cross and impaled with metal spikes. Here we learn the ultimate example of greatness is found in Jesus Christ, the one who served others and gave himself for others. He will be great, Gabriel says, and that greatness was never greater than when he bore God's curse on Calvary. And he didn't do do so as an ordinary man, but as the son of the most high God, the eternal son of El Elyon, the God most high, the the one true and living God, the the mighty God who reigns over all. Uh, Marla and I were eating uh, Thai food the other day. If you want the name of the restaurant, I'll tell you later. It's wonderful. And uh, but on the screens, they were showing pictures of Thailand and so many beautiful areas. But of course, uh, from time to time, they would show these giant Buddhas. And it's not hard to think about, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's golden monstrosity when you see some of these, these Buddhas. In fact, one of them, this thing was easily 50 feet high and about 30 or 40 feet wide. A giant golden statue. That statue does not see, it does not hear, it does not walk, it does not eat, it does nothing. It does nothing. It is a false idol, as are so many of uh, the idols of false religion around 
the world, but Christ is the Son of the Most High God, the one true and living God. He is the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh. The framers of the Nicene Creed had it right when they wrote that Jesus was God of God, light of light, what? Very God of very God, begotten not being of one substance with, by whom all things were made. He is the true and the living God. I love what St. John of Damascus wrote in the 7th century, quote, Wonder of wonders, God is come among humanity. He who cannot be contained is contained in a womb. The timeless enters time. His conception is without seed. His emptying past telling, so great is this mystery. So great is this mystery. The angel Gabriel knew this was mystery. He himself would not have fully comprehended it. Jesus was no created being or emanation from God, as so many heretical religions would teach. Gabriel would have stood adoringly in the Son's divine presence in glory since he was created. Again, he declared that Jesus would be the Son of the Most High. He also declared that the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Did you notice that? Here, Gabriel announces that Jesus himself, this Son of the Most High, born of a virgin, would be the fulfillment, the realization of God's promises to David given a thousand years earlier. The promise made in 2 Samuel 7, 16, where God says to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This child that will be born of Mary will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever and ever. This makes Jesus the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will reign forever. Fourthly, the angel states that Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Here, the angel roots the birth of Christ in the context of redemptive history, announcing that Christ's throne will be erected among and over the true children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who are the true children of Abraham? Galatians teaches us those who have faith. Those who have faith in Christ are the true children of Abraham. Before we move on to the next point, I want want us to understand something here. All of redemptive history has anticipated the coming of Christ. This is, as was read earlier in our assurance of pardon in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, this is the fullness of time. The fullness of time was at the the coming of Christ. Why? Because all of history, all of redemptive history was leading up to this, anticipating this. Jesus is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He is the ark that saves his people from the floodwaters of God's wrath. He is the greater Moses who delivers his people and brings them through the Red Sea. He is the greater Moses, he is the true manna from heaven, the bread of life, the water from the rock, the seed of Abraham that would bless the nations, the once for all sacrifice, sacrificial lamb of God that was so 
often portrayed in the temple as lambs were sacrificed. He himself is the true temple. He is the second Adam who did not give in to temptation, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the one whose kingdom shall never end. Over and over and over again, we see the types, the prophecies, they are fulfilled in the Son. It makes sense of our Bibles. It shows the continuity from the Old to the New Testaments. Too often the Bible is taught as a a collection of moral maxims, but it isn't. It's a collection of law and promise that comes from God through the apostles and the prophets and finds the culmination of its message in Jesus Christ. His kingdom will never end. Gabriel understood God's saving purpose would be realized in Jesus Christ. He understood and proclaimed the cohesiveness of God's plan. This was the message that he gave to Mary and he gives to us this morning. Well, after Mary heard this marvelous, staggering announcement, she asked an honest question. Look with me at verses 34 through 37. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Good question. Good question. How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, got it. That makes sense. No, it doesn't. It wouldn't have made total sense to Mary, and it doesn't make total sense to us. Because the idea of the Holy Spirit of God overshadowing Mary and there being a child in her womb is a miracle. It's a supernatural work of the living God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Last time Gabriel was questioned about the heavenly message he was delivering, he was not pleased, was he? We read earlier in our scripture reading at the beginning of Luke 1 about Zechariah's question. Mary's question, however, was different than Zechariah the priest's question. Young Mary's question was not rooted in doubt, but in sincerely wanting to know how she, a virgin, would be giving birth. She's been living in purity. She's been saving herself for her betrothed as every girl and as every boy should. She is saving herself for her spouse. And he is telling her that she would conceive and bear a son. Mary knew she went to biology class She knew that virgins did not give birth to babies. And so it was an honest question. And Gabriel provided her with the answer in verse 35. Look there with me. He said that the Holy Spirit would come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is a mysterious statement, but it brings to mind the mystery of the work of the Spirit throughout history. Throughout history. Think of how the Holy Spirit hovered or overshadowed the waters at creation. 
thus being intimately involved with the work of creation, bringing forth beauty and life and fruit in the world. Or think of the Spirit overshadowing the tabernacle and the cloud of glory in Exodus 40. Or how about the Spirit's overshadowing of Christ at His baptism or His work through Christ on the cross and at the grave, raising Him from the dead. We, this morning in adult Sunday school class, talked about the Spirit's work through the preaching of the Word, how it's not just an information dump, preaching isn't, it's actually God's Word being proclaimed and the Spirit at work in the hearts of His people through the Word. The Spirit mysteriously works in these ways. The Spirit overshadowed the church at Pentecost and still does. Indeed, at creation and all throughout redemptive history, the Holy Spirit has been overshadowing God's people in order to carry out His redeemed purposes. But it could surely be argued that nothing the Spirit has ever done could ever compare to what He has done here in the virgin conception and birth. Dear friends, what we must remember here is that the virgin birth is a part of the very foundation of the Christian faith. One cannot be a Christian and reject this doctrine. One cannot be a Christian and reject this doctrine. Why? Because first of all, by denying the virgin birth, we reject the historical accuracy of Luke's gospel. If we don't believe this, what are we to believe? Secondly, To deny the virgin birth is to deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ wasn't just another prophet. He wasn't just another teacher. He wasn't just another gifted rabbi, Jew. He was the God-man. And we have learned this before, but let me remind us that in order for Jesus to satisfy the demands of the law, and the requirements of God's justice, he could not be an ordinary man born of natural generation because he would have inherited the sin of Adam. And if Jesus would have inherited the sin of Adam, he would not have been a candidate to be the Savior of the world. No, we needed one born without sin. We needed one who was born into this world who had the capacity and ability to take on his shoulder the sins of the world and the wrath of God on the cross for his elect. And of course, Christ was that man. He is that man. If he was a normal human, he would have been powerless to save himself or others, but he wasn't. He was and is the perfect representative of man to God and God to man. There is no other mediator, and he is our mediator. One commentator helpfully puts it this way, quote, Only the virgin birth preserves the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. His conception by the Spirit points to his deity. His birth from a woman points to his humanity. One person, two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And because he was conceived by a unique creative act of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was not corrupted by the guilt of Adam. Fallen humanity could not produce its own Savior. He had to come from somewhere outside by way of divine initiative and intervention. Therefore, God sent Jesus into the world as the perfect Son of God born without sin. Amen? It could also be said, As it says, fallen humanity could not produce its own Savior. 
We cannot be our own Savior. We cannot be our own Savior. Salvation has to come from outside of me, from outside of you. You cannot save yourself. But God, by way of divine initiative and intervention, sent His Son as the perfect Savior. Do you see now why the virgin birth is so necessary and so glorious? Who but God would have come up with such a plan? God's own blessed, eternally begotten Son conceived inside a young virgin, the one through whom the universe created, growing in Mary's womb. Although Mary did not ask for a sign, as did Zechariah, God gave her one. Her relative Elizabeth, old and barren, had conceived, was six months pregnant, and was going to have a son. After Gabriel tells the surprising news about Mary's relative, he reminded her, what? That nothing is impossible with God. Dear brothers and sisters, let me repeat. Nothing is impossible with God. He can do all His holy will. And what He does is good and righteous and with infinite wisdom. Nothing is impossible with God. The same God who spoke the galaxies into existence, the same God who upholds all creation by His Word, the same God who delivered His people from Pharaoh uh, by sending uh, all of these uh, uh, um, various bugs and, and, and rocks and, uh, and storms. Um, uh, the same God who sent the whale to swallow and rescue Jonah, the same God who gives barren old women like Sarah and Elizabeth uh, the miracle of conception, uh, also is the God uh, of the miracle of the conception and birth of Jesus Christ through the womb of the Virgin Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. And so, dear one, perhaps you came here this morning and in some avenue of your life, you have been doubting whether or not God can help you. Nothing is impossible with God. You can trust Him. Don't doubt His grace. Don't doubt His willingness to forgive you for your many sins. Don't doubt His ability to work in your life. If you are here this morning and doubting God, rem- remember that nothing is impossible for God. Look to Him. Trust Him. Trouble in your marriage, nothing is impossible with God. Trouble in your walk with the Lord, nothing is impossible with God. Difficulties in relationships, perhaps in your vocation, nothing is impossible with God. Thinking that you're beyond God's grace, that you've done too many things of which you are ashamed and you don't believe that you can be saved by God, nothing is impossible with God. Do not put your trust in horses or chariots, but trust in the name of the Lord your God through faith in the one mediator, Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of the Most High, the one who lived the life we could not live and satisfied the demands of the law by dying a death that that we could not die for ourselves. And he rose from the dead, delivering us from the horrendous wages of our sin. This is what we must think of when we hear Gabriel's words. Nothing 
will be impossible with God. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says, quote, Among the many antidotes to a doubting, anxious, questioning mind, few will be found more useful than the one before us. A thorough conviction of the almighty power of God. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. So how did Mary respond to the angel's words? In a godly way, didn't she? Look at verse 38 with me as we close. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What a response. What a response. If only I, if only we responded to God's commands in this way. Mary responds in a godly way. What do we notice about her response? Well, first of all, it's a response of faith in God's word. Zechariah lost his voice after his disbelief, but Mary confessed her faith and her desire to obey. Secondly, it's a response of immediate obedience. She doesn't say, well, let me think about it. Let me, let me go away and consider this for a while, and I'll get back to you. No, she hears the word of God, and so she submits to it. She responds without hesitation. Thirdly, she responds without qualification. She doesn't put qualifications on her obedience to God's word as we often do, saying things like, I'll obey if, if it's convenient, if it doesn't affect my life too much, if it doesn't upset my wider family, if I can still love the world and be a a part of the world as I always have. No, we don't have these kinds of qualifications. Mary's response of faith is a godly one, one that not only young women should take to heart this morning, but for all of us to take heart of and to emulate. So as we close, dear ones, let us stop doubting God's word. May we stop putting our faith and our trust and our hope in the fading things, the fading pleasures and possessions of this present evil age. Let us stop relying upon ourselves and our own spiritual performance, which are only filthy rags in God's sight when we are putting our trust in them. Rather, let us believe God's word and receive Christ and rest in Christ this morning and throughout this Christmas season. Let us believe the good news of salvation that the angel Gabriel brought to Mary. Let us believe it as Mary did. And respond to it with an unhesitating, unqualified heart of grateful service, even as Mary did. Let us believe that nothing is impossible with God. In Christ, death has been swallowed up. And one day, all tears and sadness will be wiped away. Let us rejoice that in Christ, the devil has been vanquished. Redemption has been accomplished. And our Savior's kingdom will never end. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this birth narrative. We thank you for the gospel which came from the mouth of the angel Gabriel, from from you, O God. And we thank you for the realization of our salvation in Christ, the one who was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born in Bethlehem. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.